Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 52 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode, I speak with Jason Heath, who is the author of a brand new book called Winning the Audition. Now, Jason might be the host of the Contra Bass Conversations podcast, but he's here on Clarinet sharing his wisdom because it really does apply to all instrumentalists. He's done a really great job of framing the book in such a way that any musician can have a read through it and really gain something. All Clarinet listeners can take advantage of the foreword of the book, which was written by Ira Gold, at www.contrabaseconversations.com slash clarinet. And if you're interested in winning a signed copy of the book, please see the show notes for this episode at clarinet.com and be sure to subscribe to the email mailing list for a chance to win. The Clarinet Podcast is now listened to in over 50 countries around the world by thousands of people every single month. I really can't believe the growth, but I have a feeling that there's even more clarinet players out there who would receive value from the content if they only knew about it. So this week, I'd like to ask a small favor. Next time you're at rehearsal or band class or lesson or anything like that, and you're with someone who also plays the clarinet, as soon as you finish putting your clarinet together and get warmed up, I want you to turn to them and say, Hey, have you heard of the Clarinet Podcast? It's this really cool, hopefully, show that I listen to, and I think you might enjoy it. Just let them know about the podcast. I'd really appreciate it, and I would like to make sure that the value from this show reaches as far as possible. The Clarinet Podcast was also brought to you by our sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Jason Heath, who is not only the famous podcaster from Contrabass Conversations, which is now a show that has over a million downloads a year. Is that correct? That's what it's been so far. Wow. Yeah. You've reached amazing crazy. levels. And so he started his podcast back in 2006 or seven, I believe. I guess you're celebrating a 10 year anniversary now, but he's also the author of a new book called Winning the Audition, where he sort of combines his own knowledge and experience with some of the guests knowledge and experience he's had over the years for a really compelling read about the orchestral world. Welcome to Claire Neat, Jason. Hey, thank you, Sean. Great to be here. So I really enjoyed your book, and I think it's something that everyone can benefit from, even if they're not bass players. What would you say to non-bass players who want to read your book and take advantage of this stuff in there? Well, yeah, it's it's definitely advice that applies to anybody. That was my goal with the book. I started the the genesis of it was my podcast. So it's everybody except Rob Knopper, who's a percussionist in the Metropolitan Opera. Everybody else you're hearing from are bass players. But the advice is there's nothing bass specific or even string specific. It's more mindset, audition preparation, that kind of thing. So it really applies to anybody picking an audition. Yeah, I think that the the way that you laid it out, where you're including different pieces of advice from different players throughout the book, that's so interesting. Um, 
what was that like compiling all that information? Well, it's it's the first experiment and probably many of taking all these podcasts and trying to turn them into something a little more actionable or uh, or just repurposing all these great conversations I've had into something that's of use to people. So it was I wasn't sure how the heck it was going to turn out. I had no idea what I was doing at first. I just knew that I had I, I knew that there were topics I could dig into from all these guests because I've had over 300 episodes released so far. Wow. And I and it occurred to me, oh, I've talked with most major principal players in over a, two dozen orchestras. I've talked with all sorts of people that have just won auditions. Recently, I've talked with some of the most well-known teachers for the double bass from different institutions. And I knew that I had a lot of nuggets of advice in there. And so mm -hmm. what I did, which I hope to never have to do this again in my life, but I, I, I moved to San Francisco and for two weeks I woke up in the morning, I brewed a pot of coffee and I listened back from episode one through the most recent episode to everything that I talked about. And when something that I thought could be used in an episode happened, I would write down the time that I was talking about that. And that took days and days. I mean, it was dawn till dusk, <laughs> just, just going through, oh, you want to talk about getting sick of the sound of your own voice. <laughs> but, but by the end, I had this something like a 30,000 word document of everything I'd ever covered. And as I was listening, I started to kind of craft these outlines of potential projects like winning the audition. So this is the first project. And I realized that was something that kept on coming up over and over again auditioning. How, how would you, how would you win your job? That's kind of a question that everybody's interested in. And of course there's no secret to it, but there are commonalities that I was sussing out talking to all these different people. And so the book is just an attempt to organize that in a way that's useful to people. I think it's brilliant and it gives such life to the ideas and, and concepts that, that flow from the podcast. And in a way, I bet that the seasoned listeners of the show even appreciate the fact that it's laid out this way because instead of going back and trying to find the exact moment where all these people, you know, talked about orchestral playing, you've really given it to them in a very easily digestible and actionable, like you said, way. Um, what was the main sort of takeaway for you of this whole experience of actually physically writing the book? The, well, so uh, I got two takeaways. One takeaway is kind of just the advice in general, like what's what stuck out to me that I found most interesting. And that was really just how long term most of the people that successfully landed this gig, these gigs, how long term their preparation process was. It was in the three, four, five, six month range. And they were meticulous in their planning. And that was something I heard again and again and again, that many other takeaways, but that was kind of one that I found interesting. It mm. was much more methodical and, and then, than I was expecting, um, just in terms of like, from my side of things, like putting this together, I discovered, I initially put out a four podcast series called winning the audition. And you can find that on my site. I can send you a link so you can listen to what I did was I took excerpts from all of these people and I, I arranged it into four different episodes, audition preparation, uh, mindset, routines that work, th those sort of things. And that took me about maybe a week to put together. 
and it has, and I am the narrator. I'm guiding the story, the narrative, and that kind of thing. Then to turn that into a book was about three months of hard work. So wow. what I learned was like putting together a podcast highlight series, no big deal. Turning it into a book, much harder. Uh, but but the the end result, it's probably a, at least 50% my own thoughts with supporting quotes from all these people. I think that that's how the book kind of shaped shaped up in, in the end. Early on in the book, you talk about how for most people, it boils down to rhythm, intonation, and uh, this is kind of where they get roasted <laughs> right? early on right. in the process. And I, I did find that rather interesting because to me, it seems that someone who's coming to an audition would at least have those things nailed down. But then later you talk about, or, um, or one of the, the guests talks about how really 80% of the people are, are you know, passable and then 10% mm -hmm. are kind of, they shouldn't be there and 10% are really compelling, right? Yeah. But so why do you think it is that these, this basic concept of rhythm and intonation prevails as such a problem? I think it's a combination. That's a great question. But I think it's a combination of not really being honest with yourself, listening to yourself, not recording yourself enough, and just being really merciless on those details. That really is, if someone is cut, that really is the reason that I've heard over and over again. It's not the quality of your instrument. It's not that. And then, so I think part of it is just not being honest enough with yourself in the preparation process. And then part of it also is not being able to manage your performance anxiety in mm. the moment. And the result being rhythm problems, pitch problems, rushing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's, my broad takeaway from all the different conversations with why that nails so many people. I found it interesting too, how you really talk about a lot about, um, the value of recording oneself. And this is something I often get my students to do even very young. I don't frame it like an audition, but one of my mm -hmm. favorite things to do with very young students is to have them learn at Christmas time, a Christmas duet and yeah. they get a chance to record. And I even do, I do takes with them. I walk them through how it works and uh, even this year, I had one girl who she hasn't been that keen on her playing. But after she finished this, she was so impressed with how she sounded. And she really felt like she'd accomplished something. And she's able to give that to her parents. Anyways, back to orchestral, orchestral auditions. Um, I think that most people don't record themselves enough. Yeah. And, but what I'm interested in is with this new tool, how do you think this has changed the, the audition process and versus how people prepared in the past? Like 100 years ago, people couldn't. Um, record themselves, what did they do? Yeah, it's never been easier to record yourself and have those tools. And I think that that is up the ante for so many, for, for everybody, right? I mean, that's just kind of the standard now is of course you record yourself. These people that I was talking to for, for the podcast and then worked them into the book, they were recording themselves the night before the audition. I mean, it's just like a part of their, of their process. Yeah, that's a great question. What did you do before that? I, I think that it was just a different world in so many ways. I mean, you look back to 1960, someone I haven't talked with for the podcast yet, but the former principal bass of the Chicago Symphony, Joe Guastafesti, 1960, his audition for Fritz Reiner in Fritz's hotel room in Chicago, right? Play, play some excerpts, do this and this. All right, Joe, sounds good. You know, you get, uh, it was just a, a different world. And it really was in the, 
in the 60s and 70s with the civil rights era, at least here in the States, that the screen started to come up. And it really was an, an, an equal rights thing, making sure that we're not discriminating against minorities, against women in this process. It anonymized the audition, and that took away a lot of the political advantages you might have had going to Juilliard, going to Curtis, studying with person X, studying with person Y. All of a sudden, it became a lot more about the playing. And I think that that's when the recording started to happen. Now we're in a real different era than the 1970, right? In terms of recording, yeah. uh, the gone are reel to reels and, and cassette tapes. I mean, you and I are close to the same age. I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent recording myself on my Sony Walkman cassette recorder, you know, before <laughs> or, or for lessons. And now with, with iPhones and the technology we have now, it's just, it's just easy. But a couple of, a couple of things that I've learned, it's not even it's it's not just recording yourself in general it's how are you recording yourself and how are you using that info that's something that i think the people that have been successful what they've done that's a little bit different and a couple takeaways one that i heard over and over again was recording yourself in a large space and putting your recorder where the committee's going to sit not in your little you know 10 foot by 10 foot practice room with the sound bouncing around. It sounds so different. Putting your, put it, getting into a hall and recording a hundred feet away. And how do you sound from there? And what stands out? And how are your dynamics? And people, when I ask people about their aha moment, which I did frequently throughout this whole process, that was one of the things that really kind of help them to turn the corner for their audition preparation. And then the other thing that I heard, and I love this, and I've been doing this ever since hearing this from several people is a great way to, to record is wake up, tune your instrument, and then just play the list down beginning to end for your recorder. Turn it off, go get a drink of water, stretch out or something, listen back, and that, you cold at your least glamorous, you know, you're without warming up for a half hour, that's your most likely litmus test of what you're probably going to sound like in an audition. And using that to base your preparation. When people did that and they just got a cold, hard, unwarmed up uh, recording of themselves – and then use that. That was another big turnaround in terms of, of using recording technology. So you touched there on something I do want to get to as well, which was the adversity training, which I found mm -hmm. really interesting. But before mm -hmm. we do that, um, one of the funniest moments uh, as I was reading was when you listed off all the things you used to carry around in the 90s. Your recorder, <laughs> your metronome. And as I was reading, I was like, man, this is just an iPhone now. And then you said yeah. that in the next paragraph. And I thought that was really, yeah. really interesting. But one of the ironic things about this I'm finding is that in the 90s, people who weren't there don't remember, but why I love the 90s was because we had just enough technology to get by. Nothing was superfluous yet. You know, yeah. I never found myself wanting for technology in the 90s, which sounds really strange looking back, but we had calculators, we had phones, we had, um, you know, Walkmans, we had mini disc players. I mean, everything you wanted to do was there. It was just different than now. It was more tangible. But the weird thing about now is that Okay, so we've got an iPhone which can do everything, but as we use it, we find it doesn't quite do it enough. So we need an attachment. So now I carry yeah. around my iPhone. I carry around a little mini tripod. I carry around a little camera lens so I can get good pictures. I carry around a quality microphone. Like I've actually gone back to the same level of yeah. stuff as technology has <laughs> kind of gone full circle. So um, yeah. what's in your bag nowadays as far as stuff that you do carry around? Um, let's say you want to go practice and record yourself and and what does it look like? 
Well, I have, I love that you say it because I, I have a very similar setup, right? I have my iPhone and my massive number of accessories too. <laughs> uh, and so for me, it's like, am I trying to get something that I, that's like truly high production quality or is it just for my own, uh, gorilla kind of DIY practicing purposes? Mm. And so the, the great thing about the iPhone is if you're just looking for rhythm and pitch, record with a microphone. That's it's, it's okay. It's not anything you're going to release to the world, but that's okay. It is if mono gonna, though. Yeah, that's, that's true. And so I do, if I'm looking to, but for me, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like a downward spiral. As soon as I start to add gear, if I yeah. add my mic, well, mm -hmm. then I need to bring my speakers. Cause I really want to hear how that sounds. <laughs> and then oh, I really should bring my tripod and not just put the iPhone on my music stand and that kind of thing. So if it, these days I, I'll carry my iPhone and maybe, I don't know if I have it near me, but I, I, and then I have one of these Logitech, I think Bluetooth speakers that really cranks out a ton of sound and I'll bring that in my iPhone and maybe, and I have a, I forget the brand, but I have a lightning adapter microphone. That's pretty good. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll bring that. That's like my real small bag of gear besides which, just the phone. Which microphone are you? Do you remember the brand? You said you don't. Yeah, I can't remember right now. Yeah. But it's a pretty decent, it was maybe 150, 200 bucks yeah. and it, it does a nice job. If anyone's looking for a good one, um, I've been using the Shure MV88. Mm. It's a little more expensive. I think it's around 150 US, but it, it plugs into the iPhone and it has an incredible uh, digital audio converter built in and it allows you to change the polar pattern. So if you're not familiar with what that means, it means that you could record a large stereo with a more narrow one. You could even change it to record something called uh, like cardioid, which is a little closer, like if we want to record a conversation. So you can actually use it in a very versatile way and it's all adjustable through the app. So that, that, that's one I've, I've really liked. And the quality of the recording you get from that is, is amazing. And it really gives yeah. you a real look into how you, you actually do sound. Um, with regards to the iPhone, what are some of your favorite apps that help you prepare for the audition process? Or what are some that guests shared? Sure. Absolutely. I have, uh, and I can, I'll send you a link. I did a talk in 2015 on useful music apps and apps that I use in my own teaching, but I also use them for audition preparation. And some of them include, and I actually have my iPhone here so I can open it up in terms of metronome. I love this app called metronomics. And mm. I don't know if you've played with that at all, but it's like no. a Dr. Beat style metronome, but it even has some additional th things. You can set all the subdivisions to different sounds and you can set the probability that a subdivision will go off. So you could, for example, set a 16th note pattern, but you could change some of the, you could have it so that the, the beat, beats one, two, three, and four always happen. But you could take all the other 16th notes in the bar and you could set them to like 80, 85% probability. So it will play, it's almost like a drummer playing along with you at that point, making up their own pattern. You can also set two bars of clicking and two bars of silence. So you can practice something and it'll be like yucka ducka 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 and then it'll not click for two bars. Mm. And you keep playing and see how accurate you are coming in in terms of that. I love that app. Fourscore is an app that I use a lot. I'm not sure if you use that, but it's great for just whole, uh, it's just a great PDF music repository and it has a metronome built in and you can write on the music. And so four score, I love a tonal energy in terms of a tuner metronome combo. I haven't found anything on iOS that's better than tonal energy. 
and that it's a great drone. And one thing I love is it's actually loud enough that at least for bass, I can use it without a speaker and I can actually hear the drone. That's a problem. I'm sure for clarinet too. But if you have some wimpy drone coming out of your iPhone speaker, you aren't even going to be able to hear it. Tonal energy really is a nice sawtooth wave you can use that's loud. And that one will it has so many different modes. You can have a drone with a metronome going. You can even do this goofy, it's kind of like an auto-tune thing where you'll play and it will play the pitch that you're playing along with you. So if you want to practice something slow, yeah, it's very weird, but it does work. And, And I don't practice with that a ton, but I do sometimes. And it even has this amplitude kind of practice mode where you can practice and it'll show you the the shape of the sounds that you're creating. And it, I found that really useful, especially with teaching for dynamics, like with a student, I'll have them play some of that. Like, no, that's not really forte. We need to get to this decibel level. That's forte. Or you hear how that sustain is, or you hear you're releasing that note and you can actually see the shape of the sound that they're playing. So that app can't say enough good things. And then one more I'll mention is AnyTune Pro. AnyTune Pro is, there's a a computer program that's been around for years called the Amazing Slowdowner, but AnyTune allows you to take real recordings and put them into the app, and then you can slow them down, and it preserves the integrity of the recording. So you can take the Berlin Philharmonic playing Beethoven 5, and you can actually slow it down to half tempo and not have it sound like a ridiculous mess. It actually kind of sounds like the Berlin Philharmonic playing half tempo. So I found that at, and you can adjust the A. So for example, if you're, if you have eight recordings, you love of excerpts, but they're all slightly different. A that's a very common problem in this app. You can move it so that they're all a 440 or a 442, which oh, just wow. takes, yeah, it takes a lot of hassle, out of practicing with recordings and you can set loops. So it'll continue to loop different excerpts. You can bookmark the loops. So you can have like Brahms two and you have two excerpts. You can just set them as loops and you can practice one, then practice the other. So those are some of my favorite apps. I'm going to have to check those out, especially that last one, because yeah. um, one of the things I do in my spare time, I don't know if many listeners know this, but and we'll have to see if I can still play after injuring my <laughs> most important fingers for this task. But I do like to meddle with bass guitar a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's some songs, especially I like to often learn Radiohead songs. <laughs> and yeah, sure. um, but they do weird stuff like they'll there's a song they have called No Surprises, which they actually tuned off by a half semitone just okay. for that effect. And so trying to learn that song. Like yeah, I find, I found myself turning, tuning my bass, you know, around by a half, which is a yeah. little weird. Um, but that would be really interesting for, for all musical purposes, actually. It's, it's one of those things that so you used to need your laptop for it, or you used to need a, an external, you could get these external boxes that would do that. That's one of those things that it's so great to have on the phone because it's just another, another app in your arsenal of practicing apps. One of the things I loved about the book was that every time I was thinking to myself, about something, the next page you would then address that. So you were talking about using MIDI uh, mm-hmm. as a method of practicing um, with a metronome. Before I ask my question, I want to ask, um, how did you go about putting the MIDI in the computer, though? That's one point I was kind of a disconnect for me. Did you actually yeah. write the score in yourself and then listen back to it? I would actually use, there's a, a website called Classical Music Archive, classicalmusicarchive.com that allows, you can get a free account and you can download full MIDI versions of all standard repertoire, pretty much. 
And it's oh, certainly wow. all public domain repertoire. I, hats off to whoever programmed that in. I have no idea. Thankfully, it wasn't me. But you can get <laughs> the entire Beethoven 5, Beethoven 9, Brahms, Mozart, Schubert. Stra- I don't know about Stravinsky, but Strauss. You can get certainly anything in the public domain is there. So what I do personally, which works pretty well, is I would just use a program like Finale or Sibelius and I'd open that in that program. So then you have Mm -hmm. the whole orchestra score and then you can do like what I was talking with any tune. You can find your excerpt, put a metronome on, practice with the whole orchestra, practice just with the strings, just with the winds. And I found that it's not the most musical way to practice necessarily, but it sure is a good rhythm pitch and context having the orchestra along with you. Well, and as I was seeing the benefits, as I was reading, I I then started to think about what you just said, which was, well, it's not really the most musical way. What do you do then? And then you talked about playing with the different recordings and trying Mm -hmm. to change your own style. And it does seem like such a good way to start. I mean, instead of just putting on a metronome, getting to know even through MIDI, just the way that it, the other parts sound. Um, I remember a masterclass a while ago where I can't remember who was playing or who was teaching it actually, but they talked a lot about, they talked mostly about what are the other instruments doing here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that was a very, you know, of course, interesting way to flip the problem on its head. But for an orchestral edition, that is very much the point. A lot of the yeah. time, how are you interacting and blending with the ensemble? Even if you are the soloist, what is, what is happening <laughs> in the music? Well, and, and that's something that so many people talked about with, with auditioning is some, and something that, people who haven't had a full-time orchestra job really struggle with is just the context of these excerpts. You know, if you, if you have a full-time job, you're spending eight services a week, usually playing all these masterworks at tempo with an entire orchestra. And you just understand the context. It's like being an actor and you've been, you know, doing Shakespeare for years. You just understand versus just learning these isolated fragments under tempo. And, and that's something that, in the, in the final state, that might get you through the preliminaries is playing them in tune and in time, but not really having a feel for what this excerpt, how this really, what, what's going on here in terms of the score? What, why, why are we, if it's an opera, what's, what's happening? Or if it's a Brahms symphony, you know, what, what, what are the woodwinds doing? What are the horns doing? And practicing with MIDI and especially practicing along with recordings and just listening, 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 that can help someone who, who doesn't have that experience develop some of that feeling of context. You know, you talk a lot about the slow practice and I feel like a lot of people um, when they practice slowly, it's almost out of guilt or shame because they can't yet play it fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the most compelling thing that I read about this in the book was, um, and I wish I could quote you exactly. I'm trying to find it here, but sort of how the brain doesn't remember speed. It remembers events in time and then it's kind yeah. of malleable to speed. So if you've practiced mm-hmm. something slowly and your brain understands the spacing and the pacing, then it just naturally is able to go faster because you can do it. And that's a very interesting concept. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. And that, and that quote that you're mentioning, that's from Andrew Rossidi, who's uh, the double bass professor at Northwestern university and plays in the Milwaukee symphony. And, and his point, which I think is great is if you practice slowly and you practice with the correct shapes, the shapes you would use, like the articulations, the finger motions that you would use at the fast tempo, you you program your body slowly through this real uh, minute analysis of every motion. He compares it to how sprinters start off and how they practice, like just taking off from the block, you know, and, and 
the if you I think a trap that we fall into when we practice slowly is we practice as if that half tempo that's the tempo we were going to actually play. So maybe we use longer articulations. In, in I'm a string player. Something that we fall prey to is using more bow than is required, or maybe playing louder or softer than you might in that excerpt, being in the wrong part of the bow, using too much vibrato, just thinking of the sound in a different way. Whereas if you really practice knowing that your ultimate goal is to play at half note equals 138 something and you're starting a quarter note equals 138 the, playing with that de- that goal in mind that you can train yourself at that slow tempo so really really you'll 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 get much better results much faster if you train with those ultimate shapes in mind i hope that makes sense oh absolutely yeah i also like the idea of of taking each note no matter what the piece is and playing each note for one second at 60 beats per minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just listening and learning the the shape and direction of what's happening outside of the rhythm. I thought that was really cool. Well, and, and it's interesting. So, so many of these, and this is sort of for my perch in the bass world, there are a f- most of the jobs or well over 50% of the orchestral positions that have been won the last, say, five years in the United States have come from really three or four teachers by and large. And I have interviewed so many people that studied with those teachers as well as the teachers themselves. And so a lot of the, the result, the methodology that I sort of sussed out from these people, it's these people who have won these jobs from these same teachers. And I was hearing the same things time and time again. So I sat up and took note. And one of those techniques was that put the metronome on 60 and just play the entire list. And there's something, I don't know if you've ever done that, but I had never done that before. And there's something about, it like creates this really interesting non-hierarchical architecture of the piece in your mind. Where like, you're not thinking rhythm, you're just, and, and you might think, well, maybe that's not that useful, but there's something that really makes those, those, excerpts or those solos or whatever feel solid doing Mm. it that way. It's like, you're just, it's almost like a form of meditation on the music you're about to play. And you're thinking about tone and you're thinking about connection in such a different way than more traditional slow practice. I have really enjoyed that technique. Well, it's, it comes at an interesting time for me to explore some, some other and and new practice techniques just with my injury. Um, and I'm looking forward actually to taking a step back and trying to get my strength and, and I hope I can play again, but, but, but figuring out a way to get inside that and almost take pride in the fact that it's slow practice, you know, yeah, self-discovery, you know, I'll be finger strengthening and trying to, to regain a lot of that. So, um, but even for people who haven't had injuries, like just to get inside the music and, and, and feel it in that new way. Um, there are so many topics in the book, but one other one I want to touch on before we wrap up is, um, the, the whole concept of adversity training. And I found that very interesting because a lot of people get nerves or stress. Um, but unfortunately they don't actually put themselves in stressful situations very much, which was being advocated a little bit. Would you share some uh, information about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm a big fan of the books of Don Green. He's a sports, his, his background is in, he's actually, I think an ex, uh, Marine maybe, uh, but he moved into training athletes for peak performance and for holding up under, under 
duress and then moved into the world of music and taught for a while at Juilliard and worked with the New World Symphony about building these skills. And we're a, a quote I love. I think this comes from Paul Ellison, bass teacher at Rice University. But we're athletes of the small muscles. That's what we do in music. Mm-hmm. And and as opposed to playing baseball or football or what what have you, th- when we get nervous, those it's 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 this it affects us in this profoundly unhelpful way in terms of shakes and tensing up and, and learning how to put yourself just rather than trying to run in fear from that, that feeling kind of reframing that feeling as activation, as readiness for performance and almost welcoming that feeling and learning how to perform with that feeling there is is a technique that so many people talked about as helpful. And so what you need to do is not try to avoid the feeling of nerves at all costs because you will get nervous. Maybe not every audition, but you certainly will. And if you haven't practiced with that in mind, there's a high chance that you're going to fall apart or it's going to negatively affect your playing. But if you can learn to bring that feeling up and then manage it, and that's what adversity training is, then when that happens in an audition, it's just an expected part of the whole process. And and a takeaway that I heard again and again talking to people is that when they really started to analyze it, playing with that feeling and without that feeling, it affects how you feel about your performance, but it doesn't necessarily objectively affect the performance that much. Mm. If you record yourself not nervous and nervous or quote unquote not nervous and quote unquote nervous, you'd be surprised how close those two actually align. So part of adversity training is just confidence building. And one of the best ways to do it is what we talked about earlier is just wake up first thing in the morning, play the list. Get used to doing that. Play for anybody who listen. Berlin Philharmonic principal bassist Matthew McDonald, he I think he spent six months playing every day for somebody. He even played for a group of four-year-olds once. <laughs> <laughs> His audition last. So, so just div- recording yourself, but also just playing for everybody who will listen. Everybody, people that don't play your instrument, for sure. Some people that do play your instrument in big halls and small halls on the spot with other people walking around, the more you can do, the, the more you'll be able to manage that. Well, thanks so much, Jason, for giving a fantastic sort of snapshot into what your, your book, uh, is like. I mean, I, I, there's so many little nuggets in there that I think so many people can value. And I thank you for taking the time to sit down and listen to all your episodes and come up with this really great concept. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, Sean. So you've offered um, one copy of your book actually to the clarinet audience. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that, you know, this is a fantastic prize. And I, you know, maybe if I'm nice, you'll even sign it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, abs- I absolutely will. <laughs> what would you like to say to the person who, who wins this book? Well, I hope you enjoy the book. I, I've, I've had such a great time writing this and I just, I'm, I'm, I'd be thrilled for you to check it out. And I actually have a special, a special thing for clarinet, clarinet listeners. Um, if you visit contrabaseconversations.com slash clarinet, I will set up a, a special, you can get the, the forward to my book, which is written by National Symphony bassist Ira Gold. It's a beautiful perspective on auditioning. I'll set that up so you can get that absolutely free. So if you're interested in checking it out, ContraBaseConversations.com slash Clarinet. That'll be available to you. Awesome. So everyone can take advantage. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for 
For sure. So check out the uh, show notes for the episode with Jason Heath of Contrabass Conversations on clarinet.com. And uh, Jason, for those of us who aren't lucky enough to win the book and who do enjoy the foreword, where can we purchase it online or check it out? Check it out. You can find it on Amazon and you can also just visit winningtheaudition.net. We'll take you there. And what one Contrabass Conversations episode would you recommend to the clarinet audience, even if they don't play bass? I think my episode with Leon Bosch, who is the ba- principal bassist of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields for years and years. I did this interview. I, I hung up on Skype and I immediately went for a five mile run. I was so pumped after the interview. <laughs> Probably the most inspiring one I've ever done. It will make you feel like a lazy bones. He is the most hardworking, dedicated, inspired guy I've ever talked to. So <laughs> Leon Bosch, ContrabasseConversations.com slash Leon Bosch. I'll take you there. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes, and uh, I hope we can have a chance to one day meet in person, hopefully down in San Francisco there, and hopefully in like January so I can escape the brutal (laughs) cold of Calgary. But uh, (laughs) it's a nice place in January. Love to have you here. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For free content updates, coupons, and a chance to win giveaways mentioned on the show, please be sure to enter your email address at clarinet.com slash subscribe. The podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can help out, please see clarinet.com slash support. Today's episode was brought to you by D'Addario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.